The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 59, to the chief musician set to do not destroy. A michtam of David when Saul sent men, and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold. You therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors, Selah. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you his strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them, that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob. To the ends of the earth, Selah. And at evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food, and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power, yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and my refuge in the day of my trouble." To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. Okay, now, I've given at least three warnings on this sermon. I did it the last time I did this particular thing that I'm going to do. And so anybody that's here should have been warned, or if you just showed up today, you're going to have to put up with it. I uh, am going to pick on a couple of people that maybe you know, maybe you listen to, and I'm going to do it because their doctrine is unsound. All right. I don't have any animosity towards these people or any of the other people I brought up in the past. But if there is an error in their doctrine, it needs to be corrected so that you don't have an error in your doctrine when you go out to evangelize people or when you tell about Jesus. So there you go with that. Our sermon today is entitled Salvation by Grace Alone Through Faith Alone. This is from Romans 10. It's verses 1 through 13. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? 
that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul is speaking in this passage about his brothers of the flesh, meaning the Jews. They had gone about seeking a righteousness of their own and not the righteousness of God, which is found in Christ. Today, we will confirm that salvation is by grace through faith alone. To do this, we will choose the supposed gospel message of two prominent preachers to show where their fault is, and that what they proclaim is actually quite different than what Paul speaks of here. Their messages actually boil down to one thought and to one thought alone, self. Let us endeavor to keep self out of the equation except where God allows such an insertion. During the Reformation, one of the points which was raised was that of the five solas, meaning five alones. These were an obvious and open rebuke to Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church, which had by their time violated every precept of sound Christianity that one could think of. Roman Catholicism is a plus religion, but in God there is no plus. What he decrees is fully sufficient in and of itself, and we need go no further than what he conveys to us to know if our state before him is acceptable or not. The five solas, these five alones are, one, sola scriptura, that is, scripture alone. The Bible alone is our sole authority for knowing God's intent for his people. We need nothing more to know our standing before him. Two, sola fide faith alone. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. Nothing else that we do can add to our salvation and nothing else can make us more saved. Three, sola gratia, grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Nothing apart from God and what he has done in Jesus Christ can add to our salvation. The things we do may be in obedience to his word, such as being baptized, but they add nothing to the grace which is imparted to those who demonstrate faith. Number four, solus Christus or solo Christo, which means either Christ alone or through Christ alone. A priestly class of mediators is unnecessary. We are saved through Christ's work. He is our one mediator between us and God, and there needs to be no intermediate to go before the Lord on our behalf. Jesus Christ alone is our door of salvation, and he is the way to and through that door as well. And once we are saved, he continues to be our only needed contact with the God of the universe. And finally, five, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone, and we give no glory to any other being apart from God. Everything that is good, right, and holy concerning these five solas is obliterated by the Roman Catholic Church. 
Roman Catholicism adds to each of them. For them, it is scripture plus the church canons, councils, edicts, and papal bulls. For them, it is faith plus works. For them, it is grace plus cooperation to obtain greater graces. For them, it is Christ plus Mary, Christ plus the Pope, Christ plus the priests, and so on. And for them, glory is to be ascribed to Mary, it is ascribed to the Pope, it is ascribed to the Church, and it is ascribed to the saints. Reverence, prayer, petition, and even worship are given to these lesser gods, which are no gods at all. For each point, Roman Catholicism adds plus, 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 and plus. The soundness of the faith given to us by God through Jesus Christ is utterly ruined and worthless in the presence of such plussing. In its place is a chaotic stream of man's invention and a rejection of the purity of what is conveyed to us in the pages of Scripture. Our text verse comes from Ephesians 2. It is verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Of these points, most people who fall under the general umbrella of Protestantism accept that the doctrine of these solas is sound. And there is, at first, a high degree of agreement in the general thought of what is being conveyed. Indeed, if almost anyone is asked, do you believe in sola scriptura, the answer will inevitably be, oh yes, of course. But for the large part, this is then immediately violated in their teachings. It is one thing to cite a rabbi, the Talmud, John Calvin, or even Charlie Garrett. And it is a completely different thing to cite them as equal in authority to what is written in Scripture. But this is as common as oranges in Florida at harvest time. For example, what is taught concerning the feasts of the Lord by almost every single person who is ever taught on the subject injects countless Jewish traditions which are not even hinted at in Scripture, holding them up as authoritative. And because of this, there is almost zero understanding of the correct meaning of these feasts by the vast majority of Christians. Indeed, the number of those who truly get what is conveyed there is probably less than 1% of 1% of those who have even heard of them. In the same manner, if you ask someone, do you believe in sola fide and sola gratia? The answer will be, of course. That is what the Bible teaches. I completely reject the Roman Catholic notion of such things. And yet, what they say very well may not be true at all. It is our duty to pay attention to what is being said as we listen to others who convey their idea about such things. In the end, we should be well-versed enough to know where error has crept into someone else's theology. The error may not be heretical, but it is simply incorrect. Incorrect implies the need for correction. Let us ensure that we stick to the basics given by God, meaning those things which are irreducible in their simplicity and which convey only the truth of what he has delivered to us. Such truths are right there, waiting to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and let us contemplate it. And may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of sections for you. The first one today is The Way of the Master. How many of us have listened to Ray Comfort evangelize someone on the street? Anybody? He's very popular. He does a great job of it, doesn't he? His ministry is called The Way of the Master. The reason for this is that when Jesus spoke to people, he would get right to the heart of the matter. 
he was able to discern what was amiss in someone's idea of what they needed to do in order to be right with God. Some people that he spoke to were so broken that he would simply give them grace. They would receive it and they would go away restored in mind and soul. We might think of a person who is completely down in heart and soul. He understands that he is as vile as any man who ever lived, but he doesn't know what to do about it. Oh God, I am wretched and I am naked and I cannot find a covering for my sin. Such a person does not need the weight of the law cast upon him. He already has that burden weighing him down. Jesus wouldn't walk up to such a person and say, yes, you are vile, but now I'm going to show you how truly vile you are. Not only did you commit adultery, but you also failed in the following 427 points of the law since you woke up this morning. Rather, he brought them grace, and they took the package, opened it, and through tears of joy and release, they went away full, clean, and satisfied. Here's an example for you to see this from Luke chapter 7. Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This sinful woman went away forgiven, free, and filled with the hope that only Christ can provide. On the other hand, when someone would come to Jesus with a streak of greed, pride, or idolatry in his heart, he would bring it right out to the surface. From there, he would either break that streak and then give him grace, or the person would be so caught up in what trapped him that he would leave without any conversion at all. Maybe he would even leave loving God less than before. An example of this is found in Mark chapter 10. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus knew the heart of the man before the question was asked of him. Instead of giving him grace, he gave him the law. Here, this is what you need to do. In an act of pride in the law, he responded as one under the law would be expected to respond. I've done all of those things. But Jesus then got to the heart of the matter. The same God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The man loved his possessions and quite possibly his personal obedience to the law, pick and choose as it may be, more than he loved the Lord his God. This is the way of the master. Look at each individual, evaluate what they need, and then give that to them. If they need grace... Why would you give them the law which negates grace? 
If they think they don't need grace, well, I'm a good person, then give them the law. Once they see the weight of the law, and once that weight and burden terrifies them, then give them the grace that they thought they didn't need, but which they now realize they desperately need. And what is that grace? It is grace alone, as we have already seen. Ray Comfort does a great job of sending someone down the right path for most of the way that he sends them. He can get them right to the point where they realize they need grace, and then he fails to give them what the Bible offers. The problem with Ray's approach is not the approach. It is the failure to make a distinction between what happened before Jesus Christ was crucified and what happens now. Jesus never told any person that they could violate the law of Moses. These people needed to repent or change their mind and turn from their violations of the law. This is what John the Baptist proclaimed and is what Jesus continued to tell the people. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Unfortunately, great comfort continues with this in a completely different dispensation. The dispensation of the law was only a tutor to lead people to Christ Jesus. Until Christ was crucified, the grace of God, which saves through Jesus Christ, could not be granted. Instead, people observed the law, repented when they failed, and looked for mercy through the sacrificial system. With the coming of Christ, the grace of God is revealed. It is a revelation which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That was our text verse. I've just repeated it again for you. To understand what this means, that God's salvation is a gift, and that it comes through faith, one must simply understand what this gospel message is. Paul declares it in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I want you to pay attention to verses 3 and 4. That is the gospel. There is nothing else that can be added to it or taken from it, and it be the gospel. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Pay attention to verses 3 and 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it is, verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ, here it is, died for our sins, remember that, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul then tells us how that gospel message is appropriated from Romans chapter 10. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Paul calls this gospel the word of faith. He then says that it is obtained through confession with the mouth, something which is not, by the way, a work, as is preposterously claimed by some. One believes and confesses. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. In this, they are saved. From there, Paul tells what this means to the believer. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession 
to the praise of his glory. This then is the gospel message, 1 Corinthians 15. It is the process of receiving it, Romans chapter 10, and it ends in the stated result, Ephesians chapter 1. It is a process of belief leading to salvation. And so, what is wrong with Ray Comfort's message? His message adds to this simple process given by Paul, and what is in accord with the other apostles. How does Ray Comfort add to this message? Listen to his presentation on one of a thousand videos that he has posted. He consistently tells his hearer, you must repent. He then explains that as you must turn from your sin. He says it again and again and again. Has anybody heard him say that? Because he says it every time he gives a gospel presentation. Is that found in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 that I just read you? No. And he is causing damage to the gospel and to the hearer of his false gospel each time that he says it. Although this is a truth for Christians, I'm not telling people they don't need to turn from their sins. It is not the gospel of their salvation. It is an addition to it, and thus it is not the gospel of their salvation. It is a false gospel of faith plus works, which is different than Roman Catholicism only in order and in type. First, the Greek word for repent is metanoio. It simply means to change one's mind or purpose. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything else than that, and if you've heard it explained some other way, that is incorrect. Paul never uses this term ever. Go through his epistles and you will not find him say it. He never uses it in conjunction with salvation or the reception of the Spirit. Never. The closest he ever gets to this is in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10 where he says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul does not mean that repentance is necessary for salvation. He is saying that godly sorrow for one's state in life will lead them, hopefully, to seek out the salvation found in Christ. It is a changing of the mind. It must be remembered that salvation is based on faith in what Jesus Christ did, not on works. One cannot be saved by merely repenting from sin. If a drunk gives up drinking and yet has no faith in Christ, he will never be saved. Paul's words cannot be used in and of themselves to say repentance leads to salvation. But that is how Ray Comfort presents his message. You must do this in order to be saved. If someone does give up his sins based on what Ray Comfort says, it does not mean that he is any closer to God than before giving them up. Instead, it is the grace of Christ which saves. The repentance of a sin may lead to faith in him, or it may not. Either way, it is only by grace through faith that one is saved. On the other hand, there is a sorrow of the world that Paul also writes about. There are many types of sorrow in the natural world. If we are sorry over losing a bank account full of money, that doesn't lead us to God. Instead, it just leads to frustration and bitterness. If we are sorry over losing our girlfriend, that hasn't helped us in our spiritual life at all. Instead, it is simply a sorrow which is natural and of this world. For the drunk who gives up drinking, if he is sorry for being a drunk because it led him to lose his job, he may change his mind. Repent, give up drinking, and get his job back. In this, he may become proud and say, look at what I have done. This sorrow then only produced death in him because of the sin of pride. Ultimately, through such sorrow, there can only be regret. In the end, 
It produces nothing concerning salvation, but it continues to produce death in the unbeliever. But this is what Ray Comfort adds to his gospel as he says, you must repent, turn from your sin, and come to Jesus. Those words are not found in the gospel which we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, and thus they are an addition to the gospel. Let's read it again. I'm going to take you back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. As there can be no addition to the gospel, then it is a false gospel. Always be careful when handing out tracts that the Ray Comfort false gospel is not a part of the tract that you are handing out. For example, the tract, How Can We Know We'll Go to Heaven, written by Randy Alcorn, and which follows the Ray Comfort model, says, We cannot pay our own way. Jesus said, No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. So far, so good. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. So far, so good. Because of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross on our behalf, God freely offers us forgiveness. And then he says, to be forgiven, we must recognize and repent of our sins. Forgiveness is not automatic. It is conditioned upon confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. The author of this tract does not understand either the meaning of grace, nor does he understand the gospel as the Bible proclaims it. He further has taken a verse from 1 John out of its intended context. When we believe the gospel and accept it as our payment for sins, we are forgiven, wholly and completely, past, present, and future. Without giving a minute analysis of 1 John 1 verse 9, suffice it to say that it is strategically placed between two antithetical proclamations. Here it is in context. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What did we just do back in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4? We acknowledge that Christ died for our sins. Does everybody see that? I'm going to continue. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, let me take you back to 1 Corinthians 15. It says there that Christ died for our sins. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We just did that. Oh God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. The premise of coming to Christ is that a person is acknowledging he is a sinner. There is no other need to call on Jesus Christ. Thus, a person who does so is admitting he has sin, exactly as 1 Corinthians 15 states. Further, confession is not the same as repentance or changing one's mind. And finally, the idea of repentance as laid out in this tract or as given by Ray Comfort, is not what the biblical idea of repentance actually means. Their implication is that a person must first turn from his sin in order to be saved. That is not a part of the gospel, and thus it is a false gospel. Nobody who needs to go to a doctor says, I need to get myself better so that I can go see the doctor. Dr. Bridges, did anybody ever have a problem that he cured himself before coming to you? Never. Nobody does it. That is putting the Ray Comfort cart of works 
before his horse. Instead, one goes to the doctor, is given the cure for his ills, and then, in faithful obedience to the salvation he has obtained, goes about in Christ's sufficient power, correcting his many deficiencies, hopefully. But just as a person may or may not continue in the antibiotics given by the doctor, so a person may not continue to heal in his pursuit of the Lord. The Bible instruction we receive after being saved will determine the health of our walk, but it does not affect our arrival at the end. That was accomplished through a judicial act of Christ on the cross, justifying us once and for all when we receive the grace of his gospel through faith. The use of the word repent as given by Ray Comfort is both misleading and it is harmful because it presents giving up one's sin as a necessary part of salvation. It is a false gospel. But you may say, Paul may not have said that you must repent in order to be saved, but Peter did. It's right there in Acts 2.38. That is a doctrinal problem that has nothing, zero, zip, nada, nothing to do with the gospel. First, the book of Acts is a descriptive account of the establishment of the church. Outside of a very few verses from Jesus in chapter 1, it prescribes almost nothing. Secondly, the context of Acts 2.38 does not apply to any living person today, Jew or Gentile, who has never heard the gospel. And thirdly, Peter's message of salvation through Christ is exactly the same as Paul. Paul confirms this while speaking of Peter and the other apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 11, where he says, therefore, whether it was I or they, when he was speaking of Peter in the previous chapter, so we preach. There's one gospel, and so you believed. Acts 2.38, where Peter was speaking to the Jews alone, guess what? The Gentiles were not even considered in the equation until Acts chapter 10. Many years later, he was speaking to the Jews alone, says, then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why did he say this to them? It is because they had just, within the past very short period of time, rejected Jesus, nailing him to the cross. In this, they had to repent or change their mind. He wasn't telling them to repent of anything else except their rejection of Christ. That is why a verse, just a couple verses before, preceding Peter's instructions said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel, he's speaking to Israel, know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If someone has in his life rejected the gospel, then by default, he must repent of that. If he doesn't change his mind about his previous rejection of the gospel, then he has not accepted the gospel. One plus one will always equal to improper theology. And for someone who has never heard the gospel, there is no repentance necessary in order to be saved. Jim Dwyer, I told you about Jesus five years ago and you rejected that. Are you willing to receive Jesus Christ today? Yes. Then you must repent of your rejection. That's it. That is it. He hears the word of faith. He has faith and confesses and he is saved and sealed. The deal is done. No works were involved and the sin debt is paid for. Now, only now, after this act, can a person turn from his sin and be a fruitful member of the body of Christ, as we will explain in our second thought today. 
With what will you come before the Lord? What will you present for the sin of your soul? What will bring you the great reward? On what thing will you, your sins, roll? Shall you accomplish a great noble deed, claiming it is worthy of his praise? Shall giving up a wicked life or one of greed bring you honor, blessing, and eternal days? Rather, come to your God in faith of his grace. Come to him with hands empty of any pride. By grace through faith alone will you see his smiling face, and through that alone will you in heaven reside. Our second thought today is lordship salvation. Many have heard of John MacArthur. He is well-known, articulate, and a great presenter of the Bible. However, he, at least at one time, and maybe still, I have no idea, taught what is known as lordship salvation. It is certain that if you ask John MacArthur if he believes in sola fide and sola gratia, salvation by faith and salvation by grace, as conveyed by Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he will certainly say, yes, only a fool would not do so, and he is not a fool. But if he still teaches lordship salvation, then like great comfort, he proclaims a false gospel, which adds to the three simple set of verses which I cited above, meaning 1 Corinthians 15, Romans chapter 10, and Ephesians 1. Putting what he says side by side with Paul's gospel, as we now will, then shows the problem with his theology. First, the question must be asked, is it sufficient to only believe in Christ according to the gospel in order to be saved, or is it also necessary that he is accepted as Lord in order to be saved? In this, there's the obvious secondary question of what does Lord mean? The Lordship view of salvation, as taught by John MacArthur, says that in order to be saved, someone must accept Christ as Lord, meaning master, as well as Savior from sin, in order to be saved. John MacArthur says, Lordship salvation is, this is a quote from his book, okay, the view that for salvation, a person must trust Jesus Christ as Savior from sin and must also commit himself to Christ as Lord of his life, submitting to his sovereign authority. That is MacArthur, the gospel according to Jesus, which is not the gospel according to Jesus, pages 33 and 34. This is not the gospel. The gospel is clear, and it has been presented already. Several problems with what MacArthur says involve, as many such false teachings do, a misunderstanding of the context of what the Bible is presenting. When Jesus said, for example, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That's Luke 6.46. Who was he speaking to? Anybody? He was speaking to Israel. He was speaking to Israel. It was Israel, and guess what? It was Israel still under the law and prior to his crucifixion. The plan of salvation was not yet complete. To mix what is said in the synoptic gospels with what is said in the epistles will inevitably, not just maybe or sometimes, it will inevitably lead to faulty doctrine. Jesus was instructing Israel under the law. The law was a tutor, according to Paul in Galatians, to lead people to him. What Jesus says in that context may apply later in another context, or it may not. But if it conflicts with the epistles, then it obviously does not. But the context of pre- and post-crucifixion slash resurrection is not the same. And the intent of the words spoken during those different times, those different dispensations, 
falls under those different contexts. An example would be Luke 21, 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you, all of you here, you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. When one comes to Christ, he is saved. There's no need to pray beyond that to be counted worthy. The believer is imputed Christ's righteousness and is made worthy, not because of himself or what he will do, but because of Christ and what he has done. Rather, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12, therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't pray that we will be worthy to stand before Christ, but that we will be worthy of the calling with which we have been called. The deal is done, but the state of the person in his new position is ongoing. John MacArthur fails to make this distinction. Some of the problems with lordship salvation are, you can study these later, I'll read them to you now, think on them. One, salvation and discipleship are confused. One cannot make Christ Lord until one knows what that entails. Does everybody understand that? You can't do something unless you know what it entails, which is not a provision of the simple gospel, which we have already stated. Lord God, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, and you believe and you're saved. Further, if one never gets a Bible, please understand this, and has no Bible teaching after his salvation, he can never be obedient in this way. Never. It can never, ever happen. Not in a jillion years. Does everybody get that? We are so heaped up with Bibles and supposed experts of the Bible that we think our way is the way that it has always been and the way that it is everywhere. But this is not the case. Without a Bible, which includes almost all Christians in all of Christian history until the recent past, and which continues in most of the world today, we can have no idea what we are expected to do. Does everybody understand that? If you don't know what to do, you cannot make Christ Lord of that part of your life. Two, it places the necessity of doing works which accompanies submitting to Christ's Lordship as a condition of receiving the gift of salvation. This is something which is not required according to the gospel. It is contrary to the gospel, and thus it is a false gospel. A gift cannot be earned, hence the term gift. Three, it mixes what is implicit in having and growing in faith, such as obedience, with what is explicitly necessary to be saved, which is 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. It adds to the simple gospel, and thus it is a false gospel. Four, Like Roman Catholicism, it overstates the connection between faith and works by elevating works to being a part of the gospel, claiming that there is an inevitable connection between them where there is not. As is seen, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Everybody listen and tell me if works are necessarily tied into salvation, but also for this very reason. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. You're saved by faith, right? By faith, grace through faith. Okay, he's telling you now how to make that come alive. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. 
For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. This guy does not have Christ as Lord at all. He's completely forgotten, and yet he says those are his past sins and they are cleansed. This same logic is not unique to 2 Peter, and it dispels the false notion of the false gospel of lordship salvation presented by John MacArthur. Five, it stereotypes the Bible's view of grace, which is unmerited favor. How can grace be anything but free? By labeling it, and this really riles me up when I hear this, easy believism. But the apostles taught that one is saved by belief. That's what it is. Call it whatever you will. Call it easy believism, call it apple pie, or call it the path to restoration. It doesn't change what the Bible says. John MacArthur attacks the true gospel with name-calling in order to promote his false gospel. Six, it fails to recognize that there is a distinction between justification, Jesus Christ died for my sins, I believe that, I am justified before God, and sanctification. Each person has its place, and one is not exclusive of the other. Seven, lordship salvation makes faithfulness to Christ to the end, meaning perseverance, a condition of knowing that one is saved. 1 Corinthians 3 and 5 and 2 Corinthians 5, which deal with rewards and losses and earthly punishment, explicitly dispel any notion of this false concept, as does 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9, which I just read you a moment ago. Further, it calls into question the sovereign decrees of God by saying that they can then change or be revoked. That's why I started this series with the sovereignty of God, so that you understand that God makes a statement, he utters it, and it is forever. God does not change. In other words, if a person is sealed with the Holy Spirit upon belief as a guarantee, which Paul says happens the moment that you believe, and then that is revoked, it means that one, God has changed his sovereign decree. Two, he has made an error in the first place, which God cannot do, by the way. And three, his guarantee of eternal life is not a guarantee at all. In short, it portrays God as not all-knowing, that he is vacillating, and that his word is not to be trusted. Eight, despite point seven, it inconsistently admits that a true and saved believer can be a secret believer and even backslidden for an extended period of time. And finally, concerning this failed system, the words of Paul in Romans 10 cannot be used to justify lordship salvation. There, as stated before, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm now going to read you a paraphrase of my commentary from Romans 10:9. That is not speaking of making Christ Lord of one's life in the sense of master. I will obey every precept of yours if you will save me. This is speaking on an entirely different precept, the deity of Jesus Christ. The word that at the beginning of that verse is a conjunction being used to tie this verse with the thought in the preceding verse, the word of faith. This word of faith is explained by Paul and is what he preached. It is the means of obtaining the righteousness of faith mentioned in verse 10.6. From there, he says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, confession is more than the audible words which occur in the mouth. To confess is synonymous with to profess. One can confess a lie, but one can only profess the truth. 
The word is homologesis, and the concept of agreement is to be found within it. The audible confession stands because of the inward profession. That is why Paul said in verse 10, 8, that the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. It is as close to us as the air which enters and exits our mouth and fills our lungs, and it is both audible in tone and truthful to the heart. The reason for the audible profession is obvious. No one would hide their true belief in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If he is in fact Lord, then he is alive. If he is alive, then he triumphed over the cross. If he did this, then he was without sin because the wages of sin is death. If he is without sin, then he is Lord, meaning Jehovah, and thus God, because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Does everybody see the logical connection? If he came out of the grave, then he is God. As you can see, by logically thinking this through, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, being the God-man, is inextricably tied up in the confession of the Lord Jesus. One cannot deny his lordship, meaning his deity, and be saved. This is the heart of what God has done in the stream of time for the redemption of mankind. Therefore, confession with your mouth is the making of an open profession that Jesus is God, thus denying all other gods. This would have been especially of note in Roman times when people within the empire were required to affirm the lordship of Caesar. For many, it was a life and death decision to call Jesus Lord. Most translations, rather than saying the Lord Jesus, will say Jesus is Lord. This is to avoid confusion and to emphasize his lordship, his deity. Either way, one must make the confession, which is a true profession, as is seen in the words, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Paul directly ties the resurrection to Jesus' lordship. One cannot honestly call on a dead savior. And so acknowledging his resurrection returns us to the thought that his life was a sinless life and in his life and death he prevailed. Peter explains this in his great discourse at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Here's what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter says it was not possible that death should hold Jesus because he is without sin, and death is the penalty for sin. To ensure we don't miss this point, immediately before and after stating this, Peter turned to scripture and spoke of the Lord, meaning Jehovah, in a way which implied that Jesus is Jehovah. Therefore, calling on Jesus is calling on Jehovah. But the reciprocal is not necessarily true. If one accepts the premise that Jehovah of the Old Testament is realized in Jesus of the New, then he is rightly called on the name of the Lord. However, if such people stubbornly refuse to see what God has done through Jesus, fulfilling the Old Testament pictures related to Jehovah, which pointed to him, then they have not called on the Lord Jesus, meaning Jehovah. It is an important point which should not be missed. And so, 
This belief in God's raising Jesus from the dead is the crucial key to understanding his personhood. It is a volitional act of the free will, which itself is a gift of God. Faith isn't something which can be earned. It is something which is received from God and then exercised by man. This doesn't mean God grants us the faith to believe and then we will then believe. It means that God grants us the faith to believe and we may believe. We're not Calvinists here. This is no different than God granting us the ability to accomplish mathematical skills. We may choose to use this ability or not. Maybe a better example would be the ability to swim. Swimming is possible for any normally constructed person, but it does take a step of faith to actually exercise the ability. The ability is given by God, but it doesn't mean that the choice will be exercised. Faith is not earned. It is received, and then it must be put into practice. Once the faith is properly applied, you will be saved. This follows through with the very idea of belief. There are different meanings to the word believe. One can know that Christians say Jesus is God, fully comprehending what that means, and simply not believe it is true. Jehovah's Witnesses do this all the time. Or one can believe that Jesus is God and not believe in Jesus as God. In other words, submit to that fact. A person could say, I have done the study and I truly believe that the gospel is true, but I just don't accept it for me. I want nothing to do with Jesus. Or one can hear the word, believe it is true, and by faith appropriate that truth for himself. The difference between the second two comes down to willingness to believe and confess, as Paul says is necessary in Romans 10, 9 and 10. John gives us a case of exactly this difference in John chapter 12. He says there, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. They believed, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. He's taken the words Paul used in Romans 10, and he's showing that it doesn't apply to these people. They did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. John uses the same word that Paul uses in Romans 10. Therefore, the confession is not a work, but a yielding to God. Without the confession, the grace of God cannot be appropriated because the faith has not truly been exercised. Does everybody get that? If not, read this again. But this process has nothing to do with the MacArthur false gospel of making Jesus Lord, meaning master of one's life and submitting to his sovereign authority. That is a step outside of the bounds of the one true and simple gospel of salvation by grace through faith. That is why the term easy believism is such an offense. It is God who reads the heart. But proponents of MacArthur's false gospel arrogantly placed themselves in his place and head right back to the Roman Catholic model by indicating that you have to prove your faith, which God has accepted to them. God reads the heart, and our submission to Christ will be in accord with our life after coming to Christ, whatever that life may be. The rewards and losses will be ours alone. But those things have nothing to do with the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our obedience to Christ after being saved has nothing to do with the salvation that is provided. A wife may submit to her husband, or she may not. And indeed, every wife on this planet, every one of them does so differently. 
but the wife is no less a wife because of her submission or failure to submit. She is a wife based on the proclamation made between the two. The categories are not to be mixed. When you think of theology, think of boxes. Everything fits into boxes. Boxes do not crunkle together. They have to be kept separate. And if you mix those boxes, you will have poor theology. These two points of faulty theology, Ray Comfort's The Way of the Master and John MacArthur's Lordship Salvation are but two of the many faulty doctrines which claim that they believe in sola fide and sola gratia, but which belie the confession through confused theology. Turning from sin and submission to Christ as Lord are, and I'm not going to deny this, they are both precepts which are found in the epistles. We are to do these things, but they are not conditions for salvation. Rather, they are precepts which should, but do not naturally stem from salvation. Those things fall under an entirely different category of doctrine, that of rewards and losses. Those are explained in particular in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. In keeping our categorical boxes straight, we will avoid the error that these men of God fell into. In future sermons, we will expand on something that was stated here today concerning the possibility or impossibility of one losing his salvation. The question is, is salvation eternal or can one lose his salvation? The answer is obvious, but it is one which is denied by countless strange teachings, which normally arise by the simple mistake of taking verses, ripping them right out of their intended context. Having said that, and to prepare you for our sermon next week, which is on predestination and election, and then a coming sermon on security in salvation, we can at least say that the doctrine ties necessarily into what we have talked about today that of salvation being of grace alone through faith alone. Why is that? It is because if a person can lose his salvation, it is obviously not because of something that God has done. God has sent Jesus Christ. He has provided the salvation and it is offered freely as a gift of grace. As grace is unmerited favor, then anything added to that cannot be considered grace. Therefore, as losing one's salvation cannot be because of something God has done, then it is something that the saved man has done. And if the man must do something to keep being saved, then he, by default, had to do something to be saved. Which takes us right back to the Ray Comfort and John MacArthur false gospels. Therefore, to teach that one can lose his salvation is a denial of salvation by grace through faith. In fact, it is the ultimate slap in God's face. God sent his son to die for all sins of man, past, present, and future. It must be so because God is outside of time. His decrees are sovereign, and when they are made, they stand. To say that one must do some work to be saved or to keep being saved is to say that what God did was insufficient to save at all. Let us never be found in such an unholy and pridefully blasphemous position in our walk before the Lord our God. Rather, let us have faith and trust in the grace of God for our salvation, and let us hold fast to the truth of Scripture, even if it means we may lose friends or family in the process, because I'm sure that I'm going to lose a lot of subscribers today. I never look at the numbers, and I don't care. I have to teach what the Bible says. And if I'm going to teach something that I don't believe is true because the Bible doesn't teach it, I would be denying the Lord myself. And I'm not going to do that. 
It is better to stand on right doctrine than to listen to the ear-tickling but false gospels which permeate our society and which call us away from the magnificence of what God has done for us through the giving of his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everybody got that? If you don't understand any precept, if you have a question, email me. We'll get it straight for you. But read the sermon again, follow through, and remember what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. That is the gospel. There's nothing else that Paul says. Nothing. That is the gospel. And you appropriate that as said in Romans 10, 9, and 10. There's no other way to do it. And then from there, the moment you do that, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 1, 13, and 14, which is a guarantee. There's nothing we can add to that message, and there's nothing we can detract from it without falling into some type of either bad doctrine or heresy. Okay, everybody understand that? So if anybody is listening today and hasn't clicked off because they love Ray Comfort and they haven't called on Jesus Christ, I would ask them to do so today. It's that simple. I'm a sinner. Christ died for my sins. I need a Savior, and I believe that he did it. I believe that with all of my heart. I confess Jesus is Lord, my God. And then from there, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is my plea for you today, is to do that simple thing. And the reason why I did this today was because you must understand when you're listening to somebody give a gospel presentation that they may not be doing it properly, and you need to correct them. That's all. You just need to correct people, okay? When I order tracks for the church, I go to the tracks, and the first thing I do when I order a new track is I type in a search at the top of my thing, and I look for the word repent. If it's in there, I don't order that track. That is it. And then I read the tract and I make sure that everything else seems to fall in line with it. You can't get every little detail right in tracts. I understand that. But you don't want to present somebody something that is wrong. Because what does it do? He says, Ray Comfort, he leads them to Christ and he says, oh, Jesus died for your sins. And you know, the, the law, you're condemned by the law. And he goes through all this wonderful thing. And then he says, and you must repent of your sins. Turn from those sins. And all of a sudden they get angry at Ray Comfort and they say, you know, I got to repent from my sins and I'm a drunk and I need time to clean myself up, but I got to do that before I'm saved. And it chases them away. It doesn't lead them to Christ. It chases them away. And as I said, you cannot repent of what you do not know. What are my sins? You don't know all of your sins. I mean, if you look at the sins in the Bible, we've got a lot of them that we do all the time. How can you repent from it if you don't even know what it is? Does everybody see this? It's a very minor point, but it becomes a false gospel by introducing something which is not the gospel. Okay, I got a closing verse for you here from Ephesians 1. It's verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And because we're accepted in the beloved, it's time for us to do our part and to live for God. And you can't do that without reading your Bible and knowing what he expects of you. It is impossible. Unless you want to take some preacher's advice that's on YouTube that may not know what he's talking about. He says you need to do, you need to tithe your church. Listen, tithing is out. Tithing is out. That's an Old Testament precept that is never, ever said in the New Testament in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, if a preacher preaches tithing, he is violating scripture. Because Paul says, let no one give under compulsion, but give willingly. And when you're told you have to tithe, you are not doing that and you are violating scripture. 
Learn your doctrine by reading your Bible, by absorbing yourself in this word. And when you listen to a preacher or a teacher, take everything that he says at face value until you have checked it out yourself because you are responsible for your walk before the Lord. Each one of us individually are responsible for that. I would never purposely misteach something in a class or in a sermon. I would never do it, but I may do it. And if I do, you need to be aware of that. And you can't do it if you don't know the Bible. Oh, Charlie Garrett said, it doesn't matter. Don't elevate my teachings to anything. That's never, that's the worst thing in the world to do. Don't do it. I will talk about that in four more sermons in our last sermon. Okay, let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation, which you have made so easy that we trip over it. We absolutely trip over it. Even people that have been in the pulpit for years and years and years trip over the simplicity of what you have done for us. You have given us the gospel to simply acknowledge that we need Jesus. And to add nothing to that, help us to not add to the simplicity of what you have done. And Lord, we thank you for the simplicity because without it, none of us would be saved and none of us could continue to be saved. It would be impossible for us as fallen human beings. But you have sent Christ. You have sealed us with your spirit as a a guarantee. And therefore, we are set apart as holy unto you. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. And we acknowledge you in our lives because of that wonderful, marvelous mercy and grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen. Okay, next week we're going to talk about God's predestination and election in Christ. That'll be our eighth doctrine sermon, okay? And so be ready for that. It's going to be a little bit of a repeat. If you've gone through our Thursday night Bible studies, you'll have heard this before. Or if you've gone through the Genesis sermons, you'll have heard this before. I've tried to add in some things and change it up a little bit, but you will have heard of that. Jay and Joan, have a wonderful day. We love you very much. Okay. I've got a question for you before we uh, go to, uh, this is very easy. I've made this so easy that every single person here can answer this. When does submission to Christ's teaching come about? And how does a person go about accomplishing that? When does submission to Christ's teaching come about? I've said it at least 400 times in this sermon. After you are saved. After you are saved. And how does it come about? There's only one way. It will not happen any other way. If you don't know this, you may be doing it the wrong way. The preacher may be teaching this properly and good for you. You got a good teacher or a good seminary, but he may not be. Right here. This is the only way that that will ever come about in your life is this book right here. I tell people to read their Bible. I tell them all the time. And every time I do, somebody sends me an email and says, thank you for telling me that because I haven't been putting the word first in my life. I hope I get an email today. I'm kidding. Please don't email me about that. I got a lot of work to do today, but this is what we need to do, is we need to learn this word and we need to cherish it all the days of our life and apply it properly in the proper context, okay? When does submission to Christ's teaching come about? After you are saved. And how does a person go about accomplishing that? reading your Bible, knowing your Bible, and applying those precepts to your life. Okay, here we go. We're going to take communion. Usama, thank you. You made my life easy today because, oh, you know, I got to say this before we, let me get over here so the camera people can say it. If somebody has something to give to Usama, give it to him directly, or you can get a white envelope in the back and write his name on it. Keep it separate, okay? The church gives him something, but if you have something you want to give him, please do. And if you're online, you want to take care of Usama and thank him, send him something. Straightwayministry.org, correct? There you go. Thank you, Usama. 
We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It's there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Directly from the Bible. That's what we should do with all things in our theology. Directly from the Bible. Okay, and just because somebody is famous, it doesn't mean they're right. And the more famous they are, the more wrong they will be when they're wrong because so many people are infected by it and then it becomes like a snowball. Okay, I don't have any animosity towards those guys at all. And in fact, I love to listen to Ray Comfort. I love to listen to him. But I, it irks me when he starts saying, you need to repent of sin because that's not the gospel. He can say that afterward. You get saved and then repent of sin. That would be perfect. That's what we're supposed to do. But don't tell people something which is false in advance because they are going to have a problem with that. And they're going to end up in the wrong church where they're telling people that all their lives and they're neurotic because they don't know if they're actually saved or not because did I repent of that sin? I didn't even know that was a sin until yesterday. I've been a Christian for 47 years. Yeah, oh. Happens, so you booted? That's right. That's right. Crazy. <sighs>